0: Let's ask God to help us. We ask Heavenly Father, you would open up your word to us, that you would give us clarity in this book that uh, has sometimes seemed to confuse us, and yet we have seen over these last few weeks, has brought uh, jewels to our eyes. We pray you do that again, Lord and encourage us, and enliven us, and give us real hope, real joy, real wholeness, as we meet you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in um, secondary school, um, when I went there at the age of 11, I found that it was actually a wonderful place. The school was a positive and caring environment. The teachers were kind, interested in us, by and large interested in the subjects they taught. And I had a really good time. Now, my school was actually pretty big. It was split on two sites in the town. And so for my first three years, I actually never saw the headmaster. He was on the other side. When I got to uh, the upper school, I only very occasionally saw him. It was only when I got into the sixth form that I got to know him. I found that he was a gentle, kind, compassionate man who was deeply interested in the welfare of his staff and of his pupils. And I suddenly realized something. I realized I'd felt his influence, his presence, even, for years in the school. He'd shaped the the mood and the ethos of that place, even though I had rarely seen him. His leaders do that, especially if, as he did, they lead for a long time. They don't influence only by what they do, but by who they are and it's very very important for us to understand that um, if we're to grasp the the purpose of Zechariah 9 just to remind you so far in Zechariah that the the plot of what Zechariah wants to explain to us has developed reasonably coherently if you've been here you'll have seen that the whole of chapters 1 to 6 described, eight visions that were given to Zechariah all on a single night. And together, those visions showed God's intention to to liberate his people from the tyranny of evil, to forgive them for the evil and sin that was in their hearts, to empower them by his Spirit. That's Zechariah's gospel, that's Zechariah's good news. Chapter 7 and 8 that we looked at last week then record an incident a couple of years ago later, when a delegation of people come to ask, should they mourn and fast for the loss of their historic place of worship, the temple, in view of the fact that Zechariah has has made these, or God, through Zechariah, in fact, has made these great and wonderful promises about something far greater than the temple appearing. And Zechariah actually doesn't directly answer that question. He warns them that those things are details, irrelevant actually, compared with the great abiding question, is God at the center of our lives? That good news that was described in Zechariah 1-6 to is only good news for people who have put God at the center of their lives. So far, so good. But then from chapter 9 to to the end of Zechariah, most commentators agree that Zechariah actually becomes considerably more opaque. There are actually great passages in it, some of which um, we've already um, uh, noticed. In fact, the, the New Testament, to be honest, seems to regard this last section of Zechariah as the most significant. But when you actually start to study it, it becomes far less clear how it fits into what Zechariah has already been telling us. We don't actually even know when these prophecies were given. He gives us no date. And I wonder whether the clue, at least to Zechariah 9, lies in what I learned at my secondary school. I wonder, in fact, whether Zechariah 1 to 6 is telling us practically what God is going to do, but whether Zechariah chapter 9 is here in order to give us a sense, a flavor of the person who is going to do it. Because up to now, you see, we've only had hints of who is going to achieve this great vision uh, um, uh, that uh, that Zechariah has given us. The end of chapter 6 perhaps culminated most clearly with um, this ceremony um, to to, uh, crown the high priest Joshua, Joshua, it seems, is going to be uh, is is both high priest and king. And yet, quite specifically, Zechariah one to six says Joshua is only symbolic of someone to come. And the ceremony at the end of chapter six—you can glance back at if you uh, to it if you want. Uh, not only prescribes that they should put this crown on Joshua, but then they should take it off again and lodge that crown in the temple. Because Joshua himself is not going to be the king who will achieve all these great things, Zechariah has been showing us. So far we've only had the the bag- vaguest whiff of who this king will be we've seen he will build a great community without walls we have seen that he will cleanse his people from their their filth and clothe them in clean garments we will see that th- we've seen that through him god's presence will shine brightly in the world that great lampstand do you remember brighter than any uh, uh, any sense in which god has shone up to now But we do not know who this king is yet. We do not know what he is like. It's like me at the lower school being aware of what goes on in my school and having no idea of who the person is who has organized it. Where is the king? What is this king like? is the question we are left with the end of chapter 6. And chapter 9 begins to unfold that mystery. In the same way that I finally met my headmaster, and a lot of things fell into place, so we can start to finally meet this king. The first eight uh, verses of uh, chapter 9, though, Um, warn us that um, uh, before the king arrives, as the king arrives perhaps, judgment arrives too. Judgment uh, um, uh, so far in Zechariah has been focused on Babylon, that great oppressive superpower that ruled over them in those days. But lesser powers should not think they will escape says Zechariah. Hadrach, verse 1, a a, a town that we're not quite sure where it is, will succumb. Damascus, Hamath, verse 2, wealthy Tyre and Sidon will not escape. Verse 3, Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She's heaped up silver like dust, gold like the dirt of the streets, but the Lord will take away her possessions, destroy her power by the sea. She will be consumed by fire. Be warned, wealthy people, says God. Be warned, people who think you have a stronghold. God does not respect strength. God does not respect money. If we are opposed to him, he will overthrow us. The particular focus, actually, of these verses is on various towns of Uh, of the Philistines by the Mediterranean. Philistia had actually long since ceased to be a significant power, but ever since the days of Goliath, remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Ever since those days... The Philistines had become proverbial as opponents by, of God. And one by one, as God approaches his chosen people, he will pick those cities off. Ashkelon will, will see it and fear, verse 5. Guy, Gaza will writhe in agony. Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Why? Not because God's racist. Far from it. It's because he is determined to destroy all practices which are opposed to him. Verse 7, I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Here he's describing the, the violation of Jewish food laws, but the New Testament makes it plain that those were only symbolic images of any activity which is opposed to God. Anyone who lives a life which is centered on activities which oppose God cannot expect his mercy. Not because he's racist, not because he picks out Certain groups or anything like that. Why? Even the Philistines, in fact, if they have people who are not opposed to God, can expect to see those people incorporated into the people of God. Just look at the second half of verse 7. Those who are left will belong to our God. They will become leaders in Judah, he says. Judgment is coming on those who despise him, on those who reject him, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, great and small, and yet anyone, absolutely anyone, even if their whole ancestry, their whole background, their whole life has been devoted to opposing God, anyone can turn to God and become one of his people, indeed can become a leader amongst his people. But I will defend my house, verse 8, against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for I am keeping watch. Do you remember? Those horses hiding in the ravine, ready to go out and spy on the whole world, right at the beginning? God said he was keeping watch. or well, so he is. And one day, every single person who is opposed to him will be judged. But then, from verses 9 to 13, the king arrives. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Here he is at last. Get the crown out that was lodged in the temple, waiting for him. He has completed this, this great sweeping conquest now down the, the, to the west of Israel. And now he's approaching Jerusalem, having defeated all of his opponents. He is coming home. He is coming to be crowned. And what is he like? Of course he is righteous, he fights for what is right. Of course he is a saviour, he liberates those who love him and obey him. But here is the surprise in the second half of verse 9. He's gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In one sense, it wasn't a surprise, was it? All kings, as we saw earlier, were supposed to ride on donkeys. Not for them, the white horses of kings and uh, princes that other nations adopted. They were to signify, as we said again, that they were ordinary men who rode a normal mode of transport. By rights, if the king followed, uh, the Queen uh, of England followed the, the biblical model, she would uh, ride around in the Royal Ford Fiesta, wouldn't she? But by Zechariah's day, donkeys had just come to be acknowledged as royal transport. They didn't think much of the roots of why kings of Israel had to ride donkeys. Zechariah wants to hammer it home. There is a reason why this king comes on a donkey because he is gentle. He is not a man of war, though he has to overthrow his enemies. He is not fundamentally a man of war. You cannot hitch a chariot to a donkey. It doesn't work terribly well. You cannot outmaneuver your enemies on a donkey. They can run faster than a donkey can. If you want to be proud and fearsome, then uh, ride your big white horse. A donkey is not a good means of transport. In fact, I found a picture, perhaps, which, uh, which makes that point uh, very vividly. No animals were hurt in this, I'm assured. <laughs> but there, there is the poor donkey. He is gentle and riding on a donkey. A humble creature. Not a terribly magnificent creature. But there he is. The king who defeated all of those opponents, great and small, actually comes to his people on really quite a laughable mount. This donkey-riding king, though, will remove all instruments of warfare from God's people. Verse uh, 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. In fact, he's going to remove uh, warfare from the whole world verse 10 again he will proclaim peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth and he will bring freedom to his people verse 11 makes that very plain i will free your prisoners from the waterless pit he says. The waterless pit perhaps recalls Joseph. Do you remember he was thrown into a dry cistern by his brothers and then sold off into slavery? Or perhaps it recalls Jeremiah, more recently in Zechariah's day, who was thrown by his enemies into a a dry cistern as well and had to languish there for some time. God's people sometimes find themselves imprisoned, trapped, restrained, feeling, though they're not drowning quite, they are inhibited. I will free you, says God. I will set you free. Though um, they may still, for a while, be prisoners, they are, as he puts it in... um, uh, in verse 12, they are prisoners of hope. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. This gentle king then brings peace to the world, brings freedom to his people, and he will use his people for his purposes. Do you see that? Verse 13 I will bend Judah as my bow, fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword It is inconceivable that this gentle king is actually sending his people out to go and uh, make war in the literal sense. No, the real war is against the powers of darkness in this world which hold people captive Which stopped them hearing the good news of Zechariah's gospel. And now God's people can be powerful instruments in his hands. They can be like a bow bent, they can be like the arrow that is sent. Amazing to think that perhaps we are the bow that sends the Inner Vista team as the arrow out. To the farthest ends of the earth, so that the forces of darkness will be defeated. God can use his people, he will use his people. Who is this king? Of course, he's Jesus. Of course, uh, Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. He is the great victorious king that, the, that Zechariah and the whole Old Testament look forward to. And he wins his victory humbly and gently. You know, um, this um, reference to the king's gentleness in Zechariah nine. 9 was um, thought to be very unexciting in Jesus' day. This passage was very, very rarely mentioned in the synagogues, all the, uh, um, of all the, the documents that we have, of the Bible studies that were going on in those days. Hardly any of them thought much of this prophecy, because it's a bit of an-climax, isn't it? We want a warrior. We want the all-powerful one, and he is that. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, knowing that his greatest victory would be won, through being gentle and humble. Knowing that actually that was going to take him to the cross. but knowing actually that the forces of darkness would be defeated because he would pay for the sins of you and me on the cross on that day and win the victory that the whole Old Testament, the whole of history had been waiting for. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he wanted to indicate to his disciples that he would die. He took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was actually echoing Zechariah 9 verse 11. God will do all of these things through Jesus as he puts it, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Centuries before that, God had made a solemn promise, a covenant that he would free his people from all evil and he had sealed it symbolically with the blood of sacrifices, calling that blood the blood of the covenant. God knew on that day that one day it would be the blood of God the Son who would seal that covenant finally because only God the Son could pay for our forgiveness. Zechariah sees that. God reminds them here, at this moment when they see the humility and gentleness of Jesus, that he has to be that in order, in fact, to be able to shed the blood of the covenant. that's what jesus does then that's what he is like that's the that's the character of the man who achieves all of those things that we saw in zechariah 1 to 6 yes he hasn't finally completed all of those things yet we are still as he puts it prisoners of hope sin still sticks sticks to us. We don't yet see God. We still die, but we are prisoners of hope. We are people who know that we will see that freedom that is promised. We will see the the peace that God gives us, both in our relationships with, 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 with one another, but finally in our relationship with God. And until the final fulfillment of that day, we will be used by him as his bow, as his arrow. And the king who achieves all of those things is gentle Jesus. I want to say to you this morning, Isn't that the only king to have? Isn't he the only king worth having as king of our lives? Because you see, the the great tragedy that I see, especially within churches, is that people buy all that good news of the gospel. They acknowledge the truths about Jesus and yet they will not have him as king. We will not put him at the center of our lives as uh, Zechariah challenged us to do in verses 7 and 8. We have another king there and all other kings are brutal, you know. We let money rule us. Money will not love you, you know. Money is a lovely servant, a terrible master. We put our desire for a, um, a, a, a partner on the throne. I must have one satisfying human relationship on, on this earth. That's going to be my God, my King. When that desire becomes enthroned in our lives, it rules us and destroys us. We uh, put our desire for short term pleasure, for pleasure and satisfaction now, immediately on the throne in our lives. I must have this now. You know, that is like being a thief. Thieves are the ones who look at something that they haven't got and take it illegitimately. They do not think of the long-term consequences. Well, in the same way, if we allow that desire to rule our lives now, to be enthroned in our lives now, it will destroy us. Again and again, I meet people who have enthroned that desire for short-term pleasure, and I see the way that it catches up on them. There is no master, you see, that we can have other than Jesus, which will not in the end destroy us. Most especially, we put the great God me at the centre. I will worship myself. You know the uh, the old joke joke. He's he's a self-made man, and he worships his creator. There's a lot of us like that, and it destroys us. Not enough, you see, just to know what Jesus has done. We must worship and honor and love Jesus, the gentle King, as the absolute center of our whole lives. When Jesus has arrived, Says Zechariah 9, Also so after that, God arrives. If we can make him do that. There. God arrives in verses 14 to 17. Actually, from a New Testament perspective, when you read through verses 14, 14 to 17, you see um, that uh, many of these verses seem to cry out for us to see Jesus in them too because Jesus, of course, is God the Son. God arrives on a storm, first of all, verse 14. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. But that reference to a trumpet there reminds us that Jesus, His final, second coming, when He will bring in the new heaven and the new earth, the New Testament says, will be announced with a trumpet. Verse 15, though, seems to to more accurately anticipate what life is like now. Um, This arrival of God, of God the Son, Jesus, will cause overwhelming joy. For instance, (coughs) halfway through verse 15, they will drink and roar as with wine, it says. Extraordinary a picture, isn't it, that you don't quite expect? Seems to mean God's people are going to be so overwhelmed with pleasure at what Jesus has done and perhaps who Jesus is that they will be a bit like the uh, drunk partygoers who kept me awake last night. But actually, on the day of Pentecost, that is exactly what the disciples were accused of being drunk. So overwhelming was their experience of God. And Peter denies it, saying, no. It's not wine that's done this. It's exactly what the Old Testament anticipates. Zechariah tells us that too. To know Jesus, in fact, is to know the most overwhelming joy. And verses 16 and 17 describe the present beauty of those who have really come to know Christ. Verse 16, The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and the new wine young women. The the, the, Apostle Paul says that Christians shine like stars in the universe, he says, not just in the land, as Zechariah says. I must admit, I'm slightly miffed that the young women get the new wine in verse 17, but I'm sure they'll share. It's a vivid and beautiful picture of the, the, of the, of the glory, of the beauty, of the satisfaction, of the joy, of what it means To know Christ, to experience the liberation that He gives us, to be looking forward, in fact, to the final glorious fulfillment of that. We asked a question then, didn't we? Where is this King? Where is this king who seems to pop up here and there in Zechariah 1 to 6? He seems to be the key to all these things coming true. That's the question that Zechariah 9 answers for us. Here is your king, he says. This is the man who will do it. This is the quality of the man who will do it. Gentle and riding on a donkey. And he says, When he's done it, when you've seen him do it, then there will be overwhelming joy, glorious beauty amongst my people. Now I know because I saw you singing the first hymn. But it's not always a characteristic of our lives. I know that um, lots of things in life can knock us away from that. But that is fundamentally what God is doing in our lives if we are Christians. You do not need to fear to follow Jesus. You do not need to fear to know him more and more deeply, thinking you may find some dark side to him. The more you know him, the more you see him, the more you will see him as that king on a donkey the more you will see him as the one who brings overwhelming joy into our lives. And that is where your eternal life is heading. You are heading to have every trace of sadness and misery, even death, stripped away from you and to be filled with inexpressible joy that goes on and on and gets better and better and better. But if you have ignored that king, rejected him even, then there is no such hope. Perhaps today's the day when we need to say, please, Jesus, be my king forever. Let's pray. Perhaps in your prayers you want to ask yourself before God, do I believe Jesus is like that? But to know him is to know peace and joy and to be useful in his hands. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, what's stopping us from serving Jesus with our whole hearts? Is it fear of rejection by other people? Fear of failure? He forgives us.